I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And we can all say, Amen. Well, this morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me as we continue our sermon series in the history of redemption. We're almost complete. We've almost made our way through the entire history of redemption sermon series, accompanied with the Bible readings there at BibleTogether.com. And I would encourage you, if you've been following along there, let's finish strong, making your way all the way to the last scripture reading at home as we wrap up this series. Next week, actually, Sam Powers is going to bring the series to its conclusion with a preaching on the second advent as we, can, uh, as we complete sort of that, this little mini-series within the history of redemption, larger series, an advent portion, we come to Revelation 21, the second coming, the hope that we have in, in which sort of redemption that has been accomplished will be brought into its final shape in the kingdom that is coming. Uh, the first week of January, I will be uh, back and we will share a wrap-up message. And in that message, in the first week of January, I want to consider a, a question, something along the lines of that now that we've made our way through the whole of the story of redemption, what does that mean for us? We've heard the whole story, and we've, we've reflected, and we've even offered application at various points during the course of the time, but what's next? What's next for us? Well, what's next for us is, is Romans. We'll be going back into Romans come February with a little mini-series there in January on evangel, uh, evangelism and the making of disciples. But what's next for us in light of the Scriptures, not in terms of sermon series and so on? Are, are there any implications for us as a church, as a whole. And I would encourage you to consider that question here uh, at the beginning of the new year, in the coming weeks. How might we as a church take hold of together what we've received in the scriptures in the coming year? We will have spent 17 weeks together in the scriptures, walking through the whole of the story. What does that mean for us as a church Together, Not just what it, does it mean for you, what does it mean for your household, but is the, does it mean anything for us? Is there anything we should do together in our households as community groups and as a congregation together as we seek to better know, as we seek to better understand, as we seek to live together in light of the history of redemption? I commission you to that question, not just a question for me to solve, 
Not just a question for the elders to solve, but, but as partners together in the gospel for us to ask, what does the Lord have for a people in light of the scriptures? Now, that's not the question that's before us today, though. This is our Christmas service. We celebrate the hope and salvation that we have because Jesus has come into the world. And so let's pray to him. Let's go to him and ask that he would work by his word on this Christmas Eve. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Even the, the, the multitude of gifts that sort of come together in this morning, that you've given us time. You've given us motion around a sun that, that moves us through seasons and months and days and years. And in this season, at this time, you've given us the opportunity to remember. And we set aside in our church calendar a Christmas day, an Advent season of observation, remembering and hope, conforming our lives to what is true, that you have come and you are coming again. I thank you, Lord, for your word, that you speak not only about historical reality, but what that reality means for us today, what is true for us, that as a people who conform our lives to the reality of the coming of the Savior Jesus Christ and the work of his gospel, what it means to take hold of that reality by faith. Lord, I pray that you would work in the midst of the congregation this morning by your grace, by your word and spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna focus on one sentence in the middle of our scripture reading this morning. We had a pretty decent-sized scripture reading, reading through this whole paragraph, and here we are in the middle of this mini-series of Advent, in the middle of a larger sermon series of the history of redemption, and today we could break into yet a even deeper miniseries in this text. I mean, it's amazing. We could spend five, six, seven weeks together just in this paragraph, but it's Christmas Eve. Let's keep moving, right? Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at just that one little uh, sentence that's actually a doctrinal bedrock. It's the, that, that very foundation to, to which all of the history of redemption has been moving and might be the summary of the great good news of redemption, verse 15. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're gonna just look at that, that sentence and we're gonna pay attention to each one of its little phrases and I pray that God would move us along in an understanding and an application of this bedrock reality on this Christmas Eve. The saying is trustworthy. Consider what we know so far in the scriptures. Adam and Eve sinned. And, and, and by that sin, judgment was pronounced, a righteous judgment of God. God is a good God because he told Adam and Eve in their sin and rebellion, he's a good king, a righteous ruler to declare, you will surely die. Such a rebellion ought not be let loose on the world forever, but rather there will be an end. And the question immediately comes, I mean, is there any hope? Even as, as the Lord speaks 
a, a word of, of one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. The question is, who is this one that would come and crush the head of the serpent? Who is the one that would put down the enemy of mankind? Who is the one that would end the rebellion and wipe away sin and death? There's a question already in the first chapters of the Bible. The Lord holds out the beauty of his holiness as we move forward in the story, the beauty of his holiness, and it's made known in his law. He holds out blessing for obedience, and he holds out curse for disobedience. And yet, an honest soul standing there, new in the face of, of blessing for obedience and, and curse for di- disobedience, knows that they don't stand a chance. Because they know that there's none righteous. No, not one. I mean, so much for the blessing for obedience. I know what I have coming my way. But even here, the Lord holds out to that one standing honestly before the law with its blessing and its curse. And the Lord holds out the hope and promise of redemption in Deuteronomy 31. There is blessing and there is curse, but the Lord assures the people that there is a redemption for those who turn to him in repentance and faith. And this is what is pictured for the people. And he pictures it in the form of the establishment of the temple and all the worship that happens there and the whole sacrificial system that takes place at the temple. Here in graphic display, in worship at the temple and the sacrificial system, we have a drama that reminds worshipers year after year of the horror of sin. Now, I don't know if you felt like I was gonna say that next. I know as I wrote it, I'm like, did I really just write that? Is that really what's held out for us by, by the, the, the worship that takes place at the temple and the sacrificial system? We're so, we so know Jesus today that perhaps we miss the reality of what Jesus in his sacrifice and the sacrifices of the temple actually hold out to us first. Blood everywhere. I mean, it's tragic. The horror of our sin is what we ought to see in temple worship. And yet, as the priest lays his hands on the scapegoat and sprinkles the blood of the bull on the altar, there remains a hope and a promise that the Lord would take away their sin. There is the reality of the horror of sin and the impending judgment. There is a hope that remains that the Lord would take it far away. So now we are in our passage today, and here it is. Here's that hope revealed, all the hope, all the promise, all of the images, all of the patterns, all of the covenants coming down to this simple moment. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. No longer redemption promised. No longer redemption hoped for. This is redemption accomplished. And this is the mystery revealed. Now, what I want to do is I want to to take us to our passage. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's one thing to say something that's true. It's one of the reasons why I try to fill as much of the preaching here at Cross Point Coast with the words of the word. Because I, I, like, I, I try to be creative. I try to be thoughtful. I try to be reasonable, rational, logical, and say things that are true. But I can tell you right now, there is one thing that is trustworthy, and it's God's own 
word. All right? And yet right here, we have more than just a call to something that's trustworthy. I'm telling you something that is trustworthy according to the scripture. But it's also something that you can engage in. See, the sharing of something that's trustworthy is the job of the speaker. But deserving of full acceptance is is the job of the one who hears it. You see, this morning, I don't want to just herald something that's trustworthy. I want to call you to full acceptance of something that is deserving of full acceptance. This morning, we'll consider the trustworthy saying in three parts. We'll begin with the person of Jesus, and then the presence of Jesus, and finally, the power of Jesus. The the person, the presence, and the power of Jesus beginning with the first phrase, that, what is, the tr- what is the saying itself? That Christ Jesus came. Here in these three words, Christ Jesus came, we have the person of Jesus. Who, who's at the center of the trustworthy saying? You shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it, it, it's literally, this, this is the center of the whole story. Christ Jesus came. It's, it's Jesus, and there are two parts to his name. First, we have Christ. Christ, and I think by considering the Christ, there is an emphasis on the gospel. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, and that, that word Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. Well, what is he anointed to? Well, he's anointed to the fulfillment of all of redemption's hope. He's anointed by God for the purpose of redemption. Jesus is Christ. He is Messiah. When we hear the word Christ, we ought to hear and we ought to think. We ought to receive with with something that is, is worthy of full acceptance that Jesus is the anointed end and the fulfillment of our salvation. That's what we ought to hear when we hear the word Christ. But we're not just told the Christ. We're told Christ Jesus. And here we have an emphasis on the incarnation. Jesus. This is his name. The name that's given to him by the angel, given to Joseph. There is one who is conceived in the one to whom you are betrothed, Mary, and his name will be Jesus. Here's how he says it in Matthew 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Friends, that is a, one of the last prophetic statements about what this morning's passage is a retelling and fulfillment. Jesus was born as a baby. And as a baby, he was given a name, a name that was already reserved for him, a name that refers to the saving purpose for which he comes. Jesus comes with a nature and a divine purpose. Jesus is the divine God, the Son, and he comes with a divine purpose, but when he comes, he comes in human flesh. And here we have that that incarnational reality of Jesus. When we hear the name Jesus, we ought to hear and we ought to think that Jesus is God the Son was born as a child. I know it's Christmas. 
I know you got it. I know the, I know the manger scenes, but sit in that for a second. It is actually mind-blowingly, not fathomable, the divine nature and the human nature present here, right in the midst of humanity as a man. You see, the passage says, Christ, Messiah, Jesus, the incarnate God the Son, came. Christ Jesus came. And I think the emphasis here is God with us. I mean, he came, right? We have the Christ, the anointed Redeemer. We have this Jesus who is God-made flesh. Christ Jesus came. That means that God himself, the divine nature, taking on flesh, came to redeem. Here's Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's interesting because she winds up calling his name Jesus because the angel told him to. Come on, right? But what, what does Jesus mean in our midst? What he means, what he is, is he is Emmanuel or God with us. The answer to the question, building over the course of redemption history, surely, surely with all this, the curse of death with Adam and Eve, with the blessing and, and curse being held out, and yet we know who we are. We don't stand a chance. What, what is this redemption? Hope, the sacrificial system. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful image. But when will the sin really be taken away once and for all? Surely the Lord will save all of the faithful throughout all of redemption history have been saved on this thing. Surely the Lord will save. That, that faith that believes what the Lord has said. But for so long, the question remained, how? Surely he will. And on that faith, the saints have stood. But remaining a question until the coming of Jesus, how will the Lord save? And the answer is he will save by means of Emmanuel. Here's how he's gonna save. Not through a law, not through a sacrificial system, not through a blessing and a curse and just a promise for the future. He will save by means of himself not by the means of a provision of a ram and a thicket, not by the construction of a new temple, but not by the giving of a new law, but by taking on flesh and suffering death in his own flesh in our place. That's how Christ Jesus came. Salvation, salvation is Emmanuel, God with us. And for 2,000 years now, the faithful have an answer to the question of how. And we worship him. And we set up seasons and times of remembering and we gather Sunday after Sunday because it's Resurrection Sunday because the how has come and he's died and he's raised and that is the fulfillment of our hope. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved, I hope you hear that, 
I don't think I say that word enough, but what I mean the whole time, because it's what the history of redemption means. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, through Emmanuel with us, for us, accomplishing in the place of us, Christ Jesus came. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now we should probably go on to the second phrase. Christ Jesus came, and it says Christ Jesus came into the world. And I just was thinking about this, and I think the emphasis on this, on this phrase is, is God's presence, the presence of Jesus with us. All the hard things and all the beautiful things. He came into this. Jesus came into the world, like the real world, with all the beautiful things and all the hard things. He didn't come to some ethereal theological world. He didn't come into some intellectual doctrinal world. He stepped into this very created world and the very world that we plunged into sin by our own sin and rebellion. He came into a beautiful created world, dark with sin and death. This world is created beautiful and it's broken by the fall and Christ Jesus came into this world. All the beautiful things. I mean, think for a moment. Reflect on Jesus. The world that he came into. I mean, he went to a wedding. That's a beautiful thing, right? He cooked and ate fish, all right? Now, it's smoky, over a fire on a beach. He cooked and ate fish. He walked on hillsides. I had the blessing of seeing them not long ago. They're beautiful. He came into a beautiful world, and he walked it and saw it. He spent time of sweet fellowship with his Father in heaven on those hillsides in prayer. And he prayed, and he worshiped, and he sang, and surely he danced in the synagogue with the disciples. He came into a beautiful world. Jesus has seen, and he's heard, and he's touched with human hands, creation, he knew the love of a mother and a father, and he knew the companionship of a sister and a brother. And the incarnation tells us that Jesus knows the beauty of the world. He knows the things that cause us to smile and laugh. He knows the things that cause us to sit in wonder. And this is what, what made me pause on this and make it a whole separate subpoint in the sermon. As much as all that is true, he knows the heartache of seeing the beautiful things broken. He's seen the beautiful things fading and fleeting and, and passing away. Jesus stepped into like this world, the one that you've seen and heard and, and touched. He has seen and heard and touched. He came into the world, all the hard things. Jesus journeyed over long, hard miles, beautiful countrysides, filled with thorns and thistles and roots that you trip on. He knew conflict. He knew reviling. He saw death, even the death of his own close, precious friend, and he wept. 
Jesus himself was betrayed. He was falsely accused and he was put to death. Jesus lived in, in like this world. He's seen and heard and felt and, and he's grieved the things that, all the things that left us with a, a loss for words, weary and broken. And when we look around at the world we live in, I do this a lot, and I, I see a lot of corruption. I see a lot of loss. He saw all these things with his own eyes, and he heard rumors of them with his own ears. He heard reports from faraway places, and his heart was broken for those things. Jesus came into this world, and he came as one who would endure all the hard things. I'm so often grieved at the world that we live in, that there are beautiful things but so many of the beautiful things are passing away. There are aspects of, of our own culture that were once beautiful. And now I see some of those things that I knew in my childhood, not just with the eyes of a child, but on reflection. There are some things that were beautiful. They're not as beautiful as they used to be. And my heart aches. There are sufferings that linger and remain for generation after generation as well. When I read the words, Christ Jesus came into the world, I sense the reality of God's presence here, that he knows the beautiful things and he grieves the suffering loss. I have a companion in wonder and I have a companion in grief, in Christ. The coming of Jesus is not merely a theological concept or a doctrinal confession. It is a historical reality. It happened. It's a reality that Jesus experienced in the form of seconds and minutes. He experienced in the form of breaths and heartbeats and skipped heartbeats and caught breath. He trusted Jesus experienced this very world. It's a trustworthy saying, deserving of your full acceptance and also deserving of your worthy contemplation. Jesus Christ came into the world. We have the person of Jesus who came. We have the presence of Jesus in the world and we have the purpose of his coming. And here's what it says. This is the trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the power and purpose of Jesus. This is the very center of the Apostle Paul's saying. The purpose, the intention, the accomplishment of all of Jesus' coming is salvation. What's Jesus doing? Not, not only salvation, specifically salvation for sinners. Now, our reflection thus far, I think it's very important. I think each moment of our contemplation has value, value that you ought to go home with and continue in. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God with us. He came into the world and he knew beauties and he knew sufferings, but Jesus did not come to commiserate with us. And sometimes I wonder if that's what so much of our whining in Christianity is. We want more commiseration with Jesus. We want Jesus to draw closer and, and, and feel how I feel. That's not what he came for, and it's not what we need. 
We need him to suffer what I would suffer, not only feel what I feel. We need life that is in him, not him to experience our life. Jesus didn't come merely to help us know how to live in a broken world and work our way through trying times. If that was true, the broken world would remain and the trying times would endure. He came first and foremost to rescue us out of the reality of impending judgment upon our own sin, that he would secure a perfect and eternal kingdom for redeemed people forever. No more brokenness, no more suffering, no more grief not winding our way in a journey of life. No, that's life is over. And a new life has come. Jesus saves sinners. That's the hook. It's the, it's the hinge, the pin of, of the entire of Paul's argument in this text in 1 Timothy. It turns out, Paul's a sinner. And this is where we could go into the sermon series, but we could just go there for just a moment. Look at verse 13. In the first part of 13, it says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. You know, when you sit there in the prayer of confession and we pray, we have a moment of silent prayer. What do you confess? Let me tell you what I, we'll save that for later. What are you thinking about in that moment? How many of us are thinking, oh, well, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a murdering, insolent opponent of Jesus Christ and all who would call on his name. That's Paul's prayer of confession. And he doesn't forget it. There's not a time when, he, when that doesn't, come to mind as something to bring before his God. This is what is real. He's a sinner. In fact, Paul concludes our saying this morning, and in the verse that we're giving attention to, he says, to save sinners, and here he calls it to mind again, of whom I am the foremost. A list of specifics that we know of because they're recorded for us in the record of that early proclamation of the gospel. But he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to say so. No, on the other hand, it's essential to his hope. It's essential to the trustworthiness of the saying because it is sinners exclusively who are saved. Do you hear that? Paul looks at reality and the the work and power of Jesus Christ, and he says, the power of Jesus Christ for which he came into the world, is to save sinners. And he says, it sounds like the exclusivity of the gospel is found in its power to save sinners. So if he wants to find himself underneath of the banner of that sweet grace, he's not ashamed. He says, that's exactly where I am and where I ought to be accounted And where is my hope? It's essential to the trustworthiness. So in in Romans chapter one, verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's not ashamed, though he himself is the foremost of sinners. He's ashamed of his sin, but he's not ashamed of the gospel. 
which is the power of God. Paul's clear-headedness about his sinful condition removes every other vain hope, every other idolatrous notion. And you and I are so prone to other things, other hopes, other meanderings into other ways, whether it be legalism or various performances, we have, or just even pretending like we're not as bad as we look. But in all of those things, we are removing ourselves from the clear-headed reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So sit down, sinner. Sit there. In the reality of the world in which you are a sinner. And be saved. Know the love of the Christ who has come to save you. Jesus came to the earth. God the Son, taking on flesh, that he would live a righteous life that you and I have not lived. Own it and die in the place of sinners that you and I might live. Own it. The gospel, the righteous life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ is, for the, power, is the power of salvation for sinners like you and me. And friends, that's a trustworthy saying. But it's also deserving of full, acceptance. Sit down, sinner. Accept reality. The reality of your sin, yeah, but the reality of the power of God to save you, that lover of our souls. Be not ashamed of his gospel. I'm convinced that the main reason that our culture doesn't seem to have a problem with Christmas trees and candy canes, but balks at the name of Christ is because Christ came to save sinners. The problem is that every single one of us is implicated in that reality. Christmas trees are fine, but the coming of Christ in power, that's not fine. <laughs> We're all implicated. Where Paul didn't seem to be afraid of confessing his sin, we are masterful at pretending and performing our way around it. But the reality of Advent invades all of Christmas and tells a beautiful, more true story. How can Paul confess his sin without fear? Because when the light of Christ broke into the world, he came to save sinners. Glory to God, right? Isn't that the response? Not, well, I'm not as bad. I mean, I, I need to be saved and stuff, but I'm not as bad. No, sit down, sinner. Glory be to God. Glory be to God who saves sinners. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He gives glory to God. He, he goes on one verse further in verse 16 and then breaks into a doxology in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's out of a place of sitting down, sinner, knowing that the person the presence and the power of Jesus Christ, that he becomes a worshiper. Surely for the one who has confessed his sin, seeing the person, presence, and power of Jesus has to break in to a song like that. Today's Christmas Eve. Tomorrow's Christmas. I do have it right, right? <laughs> and we're all excited. We're all enjoying some wonderful things. And I want you to know this. 
I want you to go with this moment by moment, calling it to mind, speaking it out loud that those around you who easily forget, just like you do, might call it to mind. Call to mind and know and fully accept the person of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Know his presence. Know he knows the joys of getting and giving gifts. You know, he knows the trials of relationships in his own household and among his friends. And then know the power of Jesus Christ that yet remains this Christmas, this trustworthy saying is deserving of full acceptance. That is complete integration into the whole of your life. That's what full acceptance looks like. A a thoroughgoing weaving into the fabric of your imagination. Beginning with your Christmas celebration, I encourage you to this. Sinner, repent and believe. Work that into the foundational reality of your imagination. Know who you are. You're a sinner. Know the power of God to forgive you by his love and grace at work in the person of Jesus Christ and his cross. And believer, worship the Lord. (laughs) Worship the Lord. Contemplate and reflect on the reality of Christ, our need for redemption, and the fullness of the hope that we have in him, accomplished in his cross and resurrection, and the hope of his future return, so that in that reflection we burst forth with words like to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Worship the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we call out to you again in prayer, and I hope that there's just nuggets that are given by reflection on your word that call us further into worship. Lord, that that worship would begin with repentance. That worship would begin with a faith, a a casting off of a hope in ourselves that somehow we could do this Christmas right. And a, a clinging to the faith that we have in you, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but we would receive it with a, a full acceptance, invading our imagination and an integration into the whole of our life. And that out of that, Lord, we would become a people who hearts overflowing with gratitude well up in abundance of generosity. First and foremost, the generosity of of worship. That we would worship you even in the next few moments together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great grace. The hope that we have not only your presence incarnate, but your presence by your spirit that you'll work these things in us in the coming days. We trust in you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.